do design decisions involve value judgments? Andy Halliwell has gone and posted this question on LinkedIn as part of our redesigning D&T project and debates. I think this is a really tricky one to answer and our expert group felt that it was an important question that needed debating. Do design decisions involve value judgments? I think firstly, I'd be saying, what do you mean by a value judgment, a values judgment? And maybe in your response to Andy's question, you'll explore what you understand and what your views are of what value judgments are and then whether they actually impinge on or affect the design decisions that designers make and also that children make in D&T lessons. So do join the debate. We're always open to conversation and discussion on this. But for now, on to the next episode. This is the Talking D&T podcast, episode 62. Welcome to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy, a podcast for anybody interested in design and technology education, where I'll be sharing news, views, ideas and opinions about D&T. This is the second part of a four-part sort of group of podcasts that I'm recording that are me reflecting on my history in design and technology alongside some of the policy changes and curriculum happenings that were influencing design and technology at that point and helping me think about how those things, my experiences and what was happening externally to the subject were shaping what I think about design and technology and where I am today. In the last episode where I, part one, I talked about my time as a as an early career teacher um, becoming a second department and then moving into my first head of department post in 2000 in Lincolnshire. And during that period, I talked about the fact that design and technology was compulsory for all children between the ages of five to 16. We'd had a couple of different iterations of the national curriculum. We'd had the original 1990 orders, um, then 1995, then 1999, when the subject content changed, smart and modern materials um, were included. Uh, this thing called focus practical tasks, product analysis and design and make activities. That language came out to the fore, which actually was quite similar, if you listen to the last episode, to some of the things that were talked about in the Nuffield materials, which, which I use quite a lot. So in this period, um, sort of really around about 2002 to 2004, which was when I left design and technology uh, teaching for a while, I was in my second school, had a department, no post-16, um, we weren't offering any 16 to 18 education at all in the school, it was 11 to 16 in a rural part of Lincolnshire. But what was happening alongside was that there were curriculum reviews going on so one of the things that was happening was that some subjects I think it was just design technology actually in modern foreign languages children could be disapplied from now what that meant was that design and technology and modern foreign languages did not have to be studied by every child until the age of 16 so from the age of 14 they could stop studying now at that point I was like what I can't believe this um and what does that mean for the subject? I felt that design and technology was an important component of every child's um, education right up to the age of 16. And I remember drafting a letter to send to QCA and to the Department for Education at the time 
to send off. But I was working in a school where you could only put letters on the school-headed paper that had been checked by the head teacher. And he refused to allow me to send these. And I have to say, I didn't send it off my own bat. I can't believe that I didn't write as a as a teacher in my own right. Um, I look back and I think, where was where was the assertive Alison that's around these days? But anyway, that's what was happening. I really felt it was quite a death knell, and I've and I've not a death knell. That's kind of too extreme, but I did feel that that was quite a seismic moment in the importance of design and technology as part of the national curriculum and as part of um, a ch- children's general education. And I've, I've written um, an article, which I'll put a link in the show notes, where I do talk about if we look back at the decline in number of children studying design and technology post-14, you can you can pinpoint that, that time, 2004, to the beginning of the decline. There were other things going on at the time as well. There was a a review around vocational and technical education. Um, In 2004, there was the Tomlinson report that came out, the 14 to 19 um, proposals around um, doing different diplomas. Um, I was, by this point in 2004, down in Northamptonshire, I was head of department in in a really big department in a technology status school. Um, So design and technology was core. It was compulsory for all children. In fact, 10% of the children in that school were chosen on their aptitude to technology. Really interesting language. So I'd gone from a school in my first teaching where it was technology. Then we rebranded as design and technology. Then I moved to my first head of department post in Lincolnshire and really pushed the fact that we were called design and technology. And then moved to a technology school where the subject was labelled technology, but I was very keen to emphasise that it was design and technology. And I do think, for me, that has reflected my changing views, the political influences on what design and technology is and what it stands for. If you listen to the last podcast, you'll hear that I felt that my views changed from being design-centric to technology-centric. And as I moved to this uh, third school in Northamptonshire as head of department, I really wanted to bring that back as the design and technology. I I think it's something that we've wrestled with for a long time. And I I do think there's a lot in a name. But so in this, you know, this period when I left Lincolnshire, the deputy head there, I remember him quite distinctly coming into my my teaching room and saying, you know, you'll you'll be having to do stuff around plumbing and construction. And I was like, you what? You know? And I was kind of quite horrified at this around this very overpowering vocational element being being brought in to the curriculum. But it's really interesting as I moved to Northamptonshire, headed up this department and then got involved in the whole 14 to 19. I I got involved in what was called um, the flexibility programme. So I had some of my brightest year 10 pupils, 14 year olds, uh, go to the local FE college to do uh, double award engineering. So I think it's really interesting how these things were happening externally. And at different points, I responded quite antagonistically, negatively. I refuted them as being important design and technology, like to the deputy head saying plumbing, that's not DNT. So then moving to another school and completely embracing it. Um, so I think at times I was very much in design and technology and then at other times I could feel 
external things probably now pulling me out of DNT and giving me a different view. And I think that is a something that we wrestle with as designer technology teachers. I, I wrestled back with it then when I was teaching. Um, that I, I look back and I see now about where does the subject sit? Who is it for? What is it for? And where do I sit when I've got these competing values about what I believe about the subject? Where am I being influenced? I talked in the last podcast about the textbooks that I was reading, the um, courses that I attended, my, my head of department. And now I was the head of department. Who was who was influencing me? Well, alongside this, there was another national agenda about teachers gaining masters. So I had the opportunity that at that time in the early 2000s, um, there were subject-specific masters and they were funded in part by government and there were other funding pots, pots around. I remember getting best practice research scholarship twice to partly fund my master's. I did a master's at Sheffield Hallam in design and technology education. And I loved that opportunity to be taken out of my department and meet with other people. And again, that shaped my last couple of months, year at in, in Lincolnshire and the beginning of my time in Northamptonshire and it was also while I was wrestling with my direction in my career because I love my subject but I don't want to become a deputy head. So how do you raise your profile and think about your career in your subject? Where where are the roots, where are the opportunities? I've, I talked in the previous podcast about doing work with Design and Technology Association, winning a bid for the CAD CAM work um, you know, I've, I did my master's, that got me out externally meeting with other people um, over the four years I did my master's at Sheffield Hallam. Changed the way I thought. But alongside this, I was itching in my career to, to move from being a head of department. At that time, there were assistant, no, advanced skills teachers. And, and I've, some good friends of mine uh, have been ASTs. Uh, that doesn't exist. That was a that was an obvious route, but but my school didn't offer that opportunity. So I actually had to get to the point where I thought, I, I don't want to manage people in my subject. And then there was this external thing going on around 14 to 19 agenda diplomas. The idea was to move away from GCSEs and A-levels to these through qualifications with some core. I remember them being called PELTS, um, Personal, Emotional and Learning and Thinking, I think it was. Um, there was careers, there was apprentice, junior apprenticeships. There were extended projects, which I know is, is still available in some form. But those things were, were running in parallel. So I think it's interesting to think about how we have this tension between our, our love and our belief of our subject. Where do we get the food to nourish our thinking, to challenge our thinking, to help our thinking grow? I partly got that from my master's. How do you deal with that internally in your own school when... You're ambitious, as I was at that point, to develop my career, but you don't want to become a deputy head because that is the natural progression. And those people who know me will completely understand that I never wanted to go down the pastoral route. So I, I had to do some serious thinking. I was having to manage a huge team, which which was difficult. And so I actually, I left. I, I left without a, a position uh, to go to. Because I couldn't reconcile all of these things. I couldn't see where I fitted and, and what was next. So I, I left and was actually headhunted by the Further Education College that 
that I that I talked about to go and lead their 14 to 19 to go and lead their 14 to 19 developments. And that was a really exciting time. It was great to be involved in FE. It was exciting to be working across. I ended up working across three counties uh, with four 14 to 19 partnerships. If you were around at that point, uh, 2004 to 2008, 2009, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about there. Um, the Increased Flexibility Programme. As I said, junior apprenticeships. I was um, helping set up programmes for young people to leave school at 14 and, and go and do part days at a, at a university at the age of 14 and part days at a local industry. So, you know, and this is completely in oper- opposition to what I was saying previously about believing that design and technology should be a compulsory subject. And some people have said that actually that was a great thing to happen, that D&T didn't become compulsory, partly because it meant that those taking it post-14 were choosing to do the subject. But then that's not always the case, you know, that some children are chosen to do the subject. And then we have interesting battles within schools around that. So I find it interesting to look back at these external things, these policy, um, the 14 to 19 agenda, the disapplication of the subject that caused within my subject for me a discomfort, but then actually created opportunity for me career-wise. And interestingly, gave me a very different perspective and understanding about further education and vocational education and what further education how it is an essential part of that whole education establishment and those um, opportunities and different settings for young people and adults to study in, to learn in and to train in. So alongside all of this, we had different national curriculum as well. So we had another national curriculum in 2007 um, where the focus was on key concepts and key processes. And But there was still this focus on materials. So if I think back to the last podcast where I'd I tried and worked with my head of department then to bring the department together, I tried it in my second school by drawing out the idea about design thinking and creativity. I, I tried it in my third school as well. We did some of that. But so much of it on the ground is is so difficult to bring that commonality together when you're dealing with the day-to-day challenges of league tables, progression, reporting, managing teams, and trying to keep ahead. And I think at that point, that's partly why I decided this wasn't for me, because I needed headspace to focus on one thing. And then, as I said, I I took this opportunity in further education for, for five, six years to go and work on 14 to 19. And whilst that took me away from my subject, it was interesting to see real progression routes from design and technology that were non-higher education. So that's the other thing it did about shaping what I viewed and believed about D&T, is starting to think about where does design and technology lead? What are the opportunities if you study it at school that it leads on to? And so by being involved in further education, I could actually see and plan and develop curriculum maps that, that talked about that and showed young people those opportunities. It was also a really rich time about information, advice and guidance that was going on. So these different points influenced me and how I think about design and technology. So my questions to you are, 
as you've progressed through your career, whether it's your career in design and technology, whether you did other things before you came into DT, whether you've done other things alongside or afterwards or in between, like I have, have those opportunities, experiences, moments in time, do they foreground sometimes and continue to influence and shape what you believe to be the value of design and technology and its place in the curriculum and its place in the whole education? By talking through this, for me, I'm starting to see a greater depth of how these different things have affected me and what I do. And so my questions to you are, what have been those key moments in time in your design and technology and your professional career alongside what's been happening politically with a small P? And in the next podcast, I'll talk about with a big P that have affected what's happening and influenced what you do and what you think and how you value design and technology. And all those things still being played out in what you do today. As ever, thanks for listening. If you've got thoughts, comments, challenges, I'd like to really hear your stories about your place, your history, your experience of design and technology and how they've shaped what you think and what you do today. You've been listening to the Talking DT podcast with me, Alison Hardy. You can connect with me on Twitter at Hardy underscore Alison. Show notes and transcripts for each podcast episode can be found on my website, alisonhardy.work. Thanks for listening. Thank you.